will, please turn with me in the book of to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter five. You can find that on page one hundred and fifty if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter five. This morning we're going to be looking at verses seventeen through twenty-one. So Deuteronomy chapter five, starting at verse seventeen and reading through verse twenty-one. Well, if you talk to a realtor, they will tell you that one of the greatest factors that determines the value of a property is its location. And when Ellie and I moved up to Sheboygan, it was pretty astonishing to us about how much house you could actually get for your money uh, versus what we had expected to pay for a similar place in Louisville. Uh, when, when looking at a property, home buyers will go uh, to consider all sorts of different things. The, the crime rates in that area, how close it is to work, how close it is to major roads, how close Walmart is, or Target, depending on where you're at. But there's one major feature you can't figure out from maps and you can't figure out from charts. It's something that not even Zillow can predict, which will absolutely make or break living in your new home. And that's who's next door. Neighbors have the power to make your home a real pleasure to live in, and they have the power to make it an absolute living nightmare. The tough thing is that you don't really get to pick your neighbors, and even when you try to be neighborly, there's no ultimate guarantee that they're going to return the favor. Now, I'm going to stop right here and say I am particularly thankful for our neighbors that we have living next to us. Um, neighbors who I've grown to love and trust. Uh, but I've had bad neighbors before, too, and maybe you have as well. I've, I've had neighbors that were hard to relate to. Uh, I've had neighbors that I did not trust. And I've had neighbors that were just simply hard to love. Here's the thing. God cares very much about how you treat your neighbor. Not just the person that lives next door to you, but on a grander scale, he cares very much about the way that you treat all of the people who cross your path on any given day. Our king expects that his people will conduct themselves publicly and privately in a manner that will bring glory to his name. And so we see that God has spoken to us in his word, not only instructing us how to live in a right relationship with him, but also with with regards to how we are to live in a right relationship with one another. That's the subject of our text this morning. So, for the past two weeks, just to remind you, we, we've been listening to Moses recount God's word to the nation of Israel, uh, which he spoke to them at the foot of Mount Sinai, on what we know as the Ten Commandments. Uh, so far, these instructions have been particularly oriented at teaching God's people in how to live in a right relationship with him. And so for the past two weeks, that's what we've been unpacking, what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all that we are. Now we're looking at God's instruction for how we're to love others according to the standard that God has set for us, how a love for God transitions into a love for our neighbor. Holiness and righteousness are not just a matter of how we think about our responsibility directly to God. They're also a matter of how we think about and how we treat one another. We honor God when we love our neighbor, and we dishonor God when we mistreat 
our neighbor. What's more, we are really self-deceived if we think that we're on good terms with God if we're simultaneously refusing to love others the way he's commanded us to do. As our creator and our sovereign Lord, God has authority to command us in how we treat each other. He calls us to love one another. And in our time this morning, that's what I want to unpack for you, uh, what that looks like. Now, that would be impossible for me to show you in every bit, but we want to look specifically at what God says here as it's laid out in the Ten Commandments. So if you would, please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 5 starting in verse 17 and reading through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. We have a short passage this morning. Uh, We're wrapping up the Ten Commandments here. Um, But I think as we get into this, we're going to see these commands are quite profound. Now, when God made his covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, he set them apart. That is what it means to be holy, to be set apart. God called Israel to be a people, a nation that was holy to himself. So he gave them the law to serve as a standard for their lives, to really teach them the path of life, to teach them how to live. The standard of the law teaches us that we have a responsibility towards God and that we have a responsibility towards one another. Flourishing in a right relationship with God will bear itself out in the way that we treat our neighbor. And the way that you treat others will say a lot about the priorities of your heart. If you love the Lord with all that you are, if he truly is the king of your life, then that love is going to show up in the way that you show care for your fellow man. God's covenant with Israel didn't just bind them to him, although it did. It also bound them to one another. And these final commandments that we're looking at today present us with an overview, really, of what it looks like for God's people to treat each other in a way that honors him. So, to sum all this up, very, very simply, we have our main idea, the main takeaway that I want you to take this morning, which is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to unpack that idea with three points. In the first, I want to show you how these individual commandments fit within that greater category of love, how they are fulfilled by this command to love your neighbor. Second, I want to unpack what it actually looks like to love your neighbor. And then finally, in our third point, I want to show you why it is utterly impossible for you to love your neighbor the way God calls you to love your neighbor without first loving Christ. So, we're looking at fulfilling the law by loving your neighbor. We're looking at loving your neighbor how you actually do that. And then we'll be looking at the power of the love of Christ. So, let's begin with the fulfillment of the law. The law teaches us to live in two directions. A vertical direction and a horizontal 
direction. Everything that we have seen so far in the Ten Commandments to this point has been teaching us how to live in that vertical direction, in that right relationship with God. Now, in these commandments, we're looking at how God calls us to live in that horizontal direction, that is, in the relationship that we have with other people. Consider the way that a tree grows. When a tree is planted, its roots grow deep down into the soil that's beneath it. The soil uh, anchors it there. It holds that tree upright so it's not blown over. It nourishes it, and it enables that tree to grow higher towards the sun. The sun provides that tree with the life and the energy that it needs to draw those nutrients up out of the soil to set them into motion. So a tree that is in good soil with plenty of sun will grow straight. It will grow vertically. But that's not all that a healthy tree does, is it? A healthy tree also grows out. Its branches spread from side to side. And that gives a place for birds to rest in. It gives shade to those who sit beneath it. As it grows out, it is better equipped to gather more light and more nutrients so that it bears fruit. And then other trees come from it so that you get a whole forest growing together. Now compare that idea to the picture we see here in the Ten Commandments that God gave specifically to describe the way that people are to live and grow. In the first commandments, God gives instructions to his people about how to live in a right relationship with him. As a tree draws nutrients up from the ground and energy from the sun, so God's people are nourished and held fast by his word. And they live in the light of his glory. They live in pursuit of him. But just as a tree grows out and bears fruit, so we also see that as God's people live and rely on his word and grow in their relationship with him, they too grow outwardly. They bear fruit that benefits others. God calls his people to bear a sort of holy, selfless love that reflects that same sort of love that he has shown them. Think about it. When God spoke his name, to Moses on the mountain, what did he say? Well, he declared, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. The, the commands that we heard, that we, hear, that we hear Moses recounting to the people about what God said on the slopes of Mount Sinai, they all reflect that reality of who God is. We see that as God speaks to them, as he sets them apart and makes them holy, we see that he calls them to do nothing less than to love him and to love others in a way that reflects that holy character. The law teaches us that if we would truly love God, then we must also love others the way he has loved us. This is the mark of a holy people. The people of God are marked by their love, a love for God and a love for others. This is the mark of a true relationship with God, of a heart that really does treasure Him above all things. 
Just as the radiant glory of the sun produces the fruit that hangs on the branches of a tree, so the glory of God shining in the hearts of his people bears the fruit of love that we share with others. So it stands that if the love of God dwells in you, it is going to show up in the way you treat others. In Romans 13, Paul instructs us, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law sets forth God's righteous standard, his expectation for how we're to live holy lives before him. Love, according to the Bible, is the essence of the commands of the law. And Paul explains, for the command, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Paul says, love is fulfilling the law. Now, why, why should you and I be concerned that the law be fulfilled? Why is that something you need to be concerned about? Why does it matter for us? Well, it matters because the law, as that standard that God has given to define for us about what it means to be righteous before him, needs to be met. These commands that we have been studying over the past three weeks, they aren't arbitrary. They flow from the excellence and the glory of God's own moral character. If we're to dwell with God in a right relationship with him, then our character has to reflect his. We have to be holy as he is holy. And that means that the, the, the demands of the law have to be satisfied. They, they have to be fulfilled. To see why the fulfillment of the law matters, we, we need only really to hear Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So you can see why this is essential. Why we find throughout the scriptures this command to love God and to love others. It is the essence of what God has created us to do, to glorify him by loving him and doing what he commands, which is summed up in that single command to love one another. Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather that as the yes and amen of all of God's promises, he came to fulfill them. And he did that through the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. In obedience to the Father, Jesus went to the cross and he laid down his life for his people. In love, he gave his life. And in love, he took it up again so that his atoning death and victorious resurrection might matter for us, might count for us, so that we who have been joined to him by faith can share in his righteousness and be counted as perfect in the sight of God. 
That is why the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. He calls him that because he fulfilled the law with his love and with his obedience. He did what we could not do. And so in shedding his own blood as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus has established a new and better covenant, a covenant which we enter into by faith in him in which he gives us a new heart and puts his spirit within us so that we are willing and equipped to obey God, to love God, and to love others. That's the result of the gospel in our lives. And that brings us to this question of, what does that actually look like? Okay, I got the idea. I need to love God. I need to love my neighbor. But how do I do that? And what does it actually look like? And that is where this text proves so important for us. What sort of fruit does God expect from us as we love our neighbors? Well, that's the question being answered in our passage. As we look at these commands, I do think it is interesting to notice that these are all stated as negatives. And they're also all stated in the second person singular. One might argue that if the Ten Commandments were intended to teach us to respect the rights of others and to treat them the way that we want to be treated that they could be stated maybe a little differently. But that there's a clear benefit, actually, to the way that God has framed these instructions. Now, Peter Gentry explains that the reason these commands are stated this way is quite simply that God wants each and every individual person to think first of the inalienable rights of the other person and not first about his or her own inalienable rights. That is a powerful concept, isn't it? What a countercultural way to live. In an era that is dominated by political and cultural advocacy and strife and protest, that's not a message that I hear very often from people. I hear plenty of people speaking about their own rights, but I very rarely hear people about speaking about the rights of others, especially when they have nothing to gain from it, especially when it would cost them. True love, true love, is selfless love. Selfish love seeks to gain from others. We love to see people flourish when their flourishing benefits us. That's selfish love. Selfless love seeks the flourishing at others at no benefit to ourselves. Selfish love is the reason why marriages and churches and communities and nations fall apart. Selfless love, the sort of love that Jesus shows us in his act on the cross, is a love which is grounded in an affection for the glory of God and which seeks to honor him in the way that it treats others. This is where we see that top-down relationship between God and his people motivating and directing us in how we treat each other. And so we see in the Ten Commandments five ways we're called to love our neighbor. Five ways we're to keep in mind the rights of our neighbor above our own. And I'm going to state these positively just to help understand how this is, goes beyond just not doing something, but actually doing something. So the first way that we're called to love our neighbor is we love our neighbor by loving their life and treating it as the sacred thing that it is. 
Out of the estimated 8 billion people who are alive on the earth at this very moment, each one of them has something in common. They were all created by God in the image of God. Every single one of them. Each of them, man or woman, born or unborn, child or elderly, king or pauper, slave or free, rich or poor, wicked or righteous, they were all created by God and they all exist for His glory. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is there. And it it is a sacred thing. You have never met a common person. You have only met royalty. Because each person has the mark of God's own glory on them. That will change the way you treat others, won't it? God is the one who gives life And God is the one who has authority to take it away. This command, you shall not murder, is intended to protect the sanctity of human life. The word, which is used here, ratash, uh, is used specifically to describe premeditated murder or manslaughter, doing something that accidentally results in the death of a person. This is not a command that has so much to do with war fighting or with the death penalty as some have argued. It, it has very specifically with taking the life of another person, whether that's through neglect or negligence or whether it's through premeditation. At the same time as we look at this, we need to see that the point of this law is first and foremost to defend the sanctity of human life. Murder, at its most basic understanding, really is an assault against God because it is an assault against the very image that dwells in that person. Jesus explains that this command goes deeper than just the physical act of taking someone's life. Uh, In Matthew 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever, whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus teaches us that murder begins when we regard our lives above the lives of others. Murder is born out of a false sense of entitlement that tosses the value of someone else's life out the window in favor of ourselves. We must value, we must show our neighbor love in the way that we value their life. Second, we're told to love our neighbor in the way we use our body. Love your neighbor in the way you use your body. You shall not commit adultery, God says in verse 18. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a beautiful thing that depicts the mystery of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And we find it throughout the Old Testament used to describe the sanctity of God's covenant relationship with Israel as a nation. Adultery breaks that covenant commitment. It seeks pleasure in a way that is opposed to God and the order of his creation. While this command deals specifically with teaching us to honor our spouse in keeping the covenant of marriage pure, Jesus actually shows us that this has a broader application. In Matthew 5, he explains that adultery happens first and foremost 
just as murder does, as an issue of the heart. He says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. God cares about the way that we use our bodies. He made them. He cares about what we look at. And He cares about what we think about when we are in private. God created and designed us. Adultery disregards that purpose. It treats what God has created, which was made for His own glory, as an object where we use to feed sinful desires upon. And it does it at a terrible cost. Lust has torn apart more families than can be counted. Masquerading as love, lust has broken more lives than can be numbered. And it continues to wage war on men, women, and children every day. We fight lust in the way that we use our bodies. We fight lust by viewing each other not as objects to use to gratify our own desires, but rather in which to glorify the God who made that person. We treat them in their life and their body as a holy thing, a pure thing. And we do it in such a way as honors the God who made that. So we love our neighbor in the way that we use our body. The third way we're called to love our neighbor is in the way that you get what you have. Love your neighbor by the way that you get what you have. You shall not steal, God commands in verse 19. Now, that's pretty straightforward, right? Don't take what doesn't belong to you. But I think this has a broader application to the way that we work and the way that, we'll, that, we, the way that we receive what we have with a, with a heart of thankfulness to God. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love that instruction. When God made Adam and Eve, he set them in the garden and he gave them work to do. Work is not a product of the fall. Toil and work, that is a product of the fall. But work itself, we were made to be busy. We were made to reflect the glory of God in our work. Work is a good thing. God made Adam and Eve in his own image, and he purposed them to steward his creation, to work it and expand that garden. Stealing effectively overthrows that pattern. It seeks satisfaction in stuff rather than in God. Moreover, it does that by robbing that blessing from someone else so that we can enjoy it. Paul's instruction to the thief in Ephesians was not simply to just stop stealing, stop taking what's not yours, but rather to labor, to do honest labor, not just so that they could provide for their own needs, but that so that they could actually have something to share with anyone else who might have need. Suddenly, it treats property in a way to glorify God, to, 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 do, to work selflessly for the sake of someone else. Now, stealing can come in many forms, whether it's something as blatant as simply taking somebody's property, or maybe something a little more subtle like giving less effort at work, or working the system in your favor to get something a little illegitimately. The command not to steal teaches us to work hard 
in a way that brings honor and glory to God, in a way that equips us to be able to serve and love others. Manipulating others to get what you want, that doesn't do that. So let us seek to honor God by seeking to do honest labor, receiving everything that we have with thankfulness and being satisfied with Him. The fourth way that we are called to love our neighbor is we're called to love our neighbor by speaking true words. Love your neighbor by speaking the truth. God commands us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The tongue is a powerful thing. James compares the tongue to a rudder on a ship, which is small, but which directs the whole vessel. He also compares it to a small flame that has the ability to set an entire forest on fire. Your words matter. Our words matter to God. Jesus actually warns us that we will give an account even for those idle words that we say in private. We find Jesus regularly confronting the crowd and even his own disciples for those whispers and grumblings and the thoughts that were being tossed around in their own heart. By speaking half-truths and even outright lies, we harm others and we dishonor God. It's easy to see the connection of the way that we speak to the well-being of our neighbor in this command because God says specifically not to bear false witness against them. Saying things that aren't true or saying true things in a false way that benefits us is a direct assault against the truthfulness of God. By giving this command, God was protecting his people, calling for them to practice true justice and to reflect his holy character in the way they used their words. So speak true words and love your neighbor. Fifth, we see that we're called to love our neighbor by guarding our desires. Love your neighbor by having right desires. Every action that we do starts with a desire in our will, a desire in our heart. In verse 21, God gives a specific command not to covet. He says, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now this command we have typically and traditionally uh, interpreted, uh, at least in the Reformed tradition, that this is one command. But there's actually quite a bit of evidence to understand that there are actually two commands going on here. One, not to covet your neighbor's spouse, and then two, not to covet your neighbor's property. Now what I appreciate about that, and I think if you'll notice there in verse 21, you see the word and there. That is a typical, that follows the pattern in Hebrew when you're making a list when you're making commands, you use a vav, which is an and, which has been, inter- it's been translated there for you. You see that? That's usually, that it's following the same pattern. Either way, the command here is to guard the desires of your heart, both your desire about your neighbor's spouse and your desire about their property. And I think actually it's good for us to see those as separate things because your spouse is not your property. And the way that you think about either one, they flow into it. So, Either way, we're talking about coveting, we're talking about desire. You can see that God, as he gives these commands, is giving a command to guard the desire of your heart, not to covet what belongs to or was within your neighbor's control. Coveting is where we desire what someone else has. It goes beyond admiring a good thing that someone else has to actually wanting it for ourselves. Coveting is the way that King Ahab felt 
when he desired to have Naboth's vineyard. You know the story um, from, from the Old Testament about Naboth's vineyard? When Naboth refused to sell his land to the king, Ahab threw a temper tantrum. He threw himself on his bed. He was sick about it until finally his evil wife Jezebel arranged to have Naboth wrongly accused of blasphemy, which was rich because she was pagan, had Naboth accused of blasphemy so that he was murdered by a mob. And then she took possession of the land and gave it to her husband. Jezebel and Ahab literally broke every commandment here except for adultery and that conspiracy against Naboth. But it started here with coveting. They both died under the sword of God's vengeance for what they did. Now we need to hear this warning because I think coveting is one of those base sins that starts with a corruption of the heart and then leads to sinful acts of corruption. And I think it's one that we tend, as we think about the Ten Commandments, we tend to go, oh, and don't covet, and then we move on. Coveting may be one of those sins that we are most likely to permit and to just wink at, when really it is at the very core of each sin. Coveting says that I deserve what my neighbor has more than they deserve it. I ought to have that, not them. We need this warning. This is the sort of thing that we have to be proactively putting to death in our hearts or it will be killing us. We fight coveting when we value Christ and the kingdom of God above earthly treasure. We fight coveting when we rejoice in the blessings that God has given to someone else. We fight coveting when we receive what we have as a blessing from God. And we count the riches that we have in Christ above every worldly treasure. So that as long as we have Christ, we will be satisfied. Now, God's commands for how we love our neighbor go deeper, as we've seen, just beyond just not doing certain things. If you take the Ten Commandments and you read them as, well, these are things I just need to avoid. As long as I don't do these things or act on these things, I'm good. No, you have misread it. You have misunderstood it. Jesus shows us it's a matter of the heart. And as we read through the Ten Commandments, we realize this is a conviction of ourselves. Because each one of us has broken these laws in some way at any given point in our lives. These laws start with having a right heart which loves God. And that brings us to our third and final point. The reason why you cannot love your neighbor the way God expects you to without loving Christ first. You cannot love God unless you love Jesus first and foremost. Now, during Jesus' ministry, you may remember, he was approached by a certain young man who was rich. He had power, he had influence, and yet his heart longed for assurance. He was burdened with a sense that his eternity was not secure. So we're told in Mark 10 that as Jesus was setting out on his journey to Jerusalem where he would be crucified, this man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. 
And then Mark tells us that this young man looked at Jesus and said, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Whew. No wonder this young man was so hungry for assurance. No wonder his heart felt like it was lacking something. Something enough to make him run up to Jesus and ask this question before he left town. Now, he may have kept the forms of the law from an outward sense of things, but it's clear he had not fully understood what it meant to keep the law from the heart the way that Jesus explained the law. He hadn't learned quite yet that he wasn't good. But Jesus doesn't lay into him. That's what's the most surprising thing about Mark's account of this. Jesus does not ridicule him. Instead, Mark says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You see Jesus' patience with the sinner? And then he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Humanly speaking, this was not a small thing to do. Mark tells us this man was rich. He had great possessions. But there's something going on here beyond the loss of property. Jesus was asking this man to love him more than anything else. He was asking him to love others in a way that society would think was unthinkable. He was asking him to join him on the path to the cross. Not to earn his own righteousness, but to receive it as a gift purchased at the cost of Jesus' own blood. Why couldn't the man follow Jesus? By his own testimony, he said he kept all of the commandments he ought to know. The reason this man couldn't follow, the reason he went away disheartened, was because he was relying on himself. He didn't love Jesus more than he loved himself. And he couldn't bear the thought of parting with, it, with earthly treasure even when heaven was on the line. What we learn from Jesus' interaction with this man is quite simply that we cannot love our neighbor the way that God has called us to love our neighbor. We cannot fulfill the law if we do not first and foremost love Christ. The only hope that we have for that fulfillment of the law, receiving life instead of judgment from God, is Him. It is the love of Christ and the work of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit which enables us to love God as He's called us to do. And it is apart from Him that we, it is an impossible task. After this man went away, Jesus actually looked at His disciples and He said to them, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And when they didn't quite react to that, He said again, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the, the, the kingdom of God. Now that got the disciples' attention. They were shocked. And they looked at Jesus and they said, well then how, who can be saved? Because in their mind, if someone was rich, they were blessed by God. Clearly God blessed them because they were righteous, because he had done all those things. So for Jesus to say, it's impossible, what's the thought for any of us? We're fishermen. To which Jesus responded, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Without the intervening work of God, there is not one of us who could be saved. Not one of us who has been good. 
We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The law is not good news for us because we have broken it. Even though it tells us of God's goodness and it calls us to live accordingly, it can't make us do it. It can't equip us. And so we see that it is only because of Christ and the way that He fulfilled the law through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, and through His rule that we are able then to enter the kingdom of God. John explains in his first letter that God is love and that it is because He loved us that we are able to love in return. He explains this in the gospel, in his gospel, in the way, and when he says about, when he describes the way that God has loved us, telling us that God has loved the world by sending Jesus, His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So this morning, as we've talked about the law, how it's fulfilled in love, how we've talked about what God expects from us in regards to how we treat one another. Let us not fail to remember and to understand this most important point, that we are saved by His grace. And that we are saved through faith in Christ, who loved us and gave Himself up for us, even though we have all violated these commands. He loved us even while we were yet sinners. And we have received His righteousness through faith on account of what He has done for us. And that, my friends, is what will fuel your faithfulness in loving your neighbor. If you're going to love your neighbor this week, you must begin by looking at Christ and then looking at them. Looking at how Christ has loved me. How can I not show you this sort of love? You have hurt me, but Christ, I have hurt Christ far more, and he has shown me grace. Let that be the motivation of your love. And trust that God is going to give you the strength to do that. As followers of Christ, we have all been called to love God and our neighbor. The love that God has shown us in spite of our disobedience is selfless. Transforming, it's a transforming sort of love that makes us all alive in Christ. So as we seek to bear the fruit of righteousness in how we treat each other, let us rest in his grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we've, as we've considered your word and your call in our lives, and your call to love our neighbor, this all sounds really good in concept. The theology is sound. It's there. We see it plain as day. And yet even as we leave this place, this is going to get put to the test. Because our flesh is constantly at war with the Spirit, your Spirit in us, to make us love ourselves more than we love others. So Father, we want to appeal to you this morning by the blood of Christ, that you would equip your spirit in us to help us die to ourselves and to live to Christ. Help us, Father, to love our neighbor. Help us to show an unnatural sort of love, a selfless sort of love, a love that Jesus has shown us so that as we speak the word of the gospel, people would see the love of the gospel played out in our lives and they would know that there really is truth here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.